You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Welcome, and we're very pleased to have Michael Stein here. Uh, Michael, uh, I connected with a number of years ago when I was running programs in New York, and Fifth Avenue Synagogue, where I believe you grew up. Is that correct, Michael? Yes. And uh, it's great to connect again, even if it's on Zoom. Never thought we'd connect this way again. And uh, I follow the work that you do. So what is this work? So Shava Israel is a unique nonprofit, and its goal is to assist descendants of Jews and the lost tribes of Israel to reclaim their roots. It's active worldwide, and it is a rising starting point for anyone of Jewish heritage or ancestry who yearns to return to the Jewish people. And the aim is to strengthen the ties between the Jewish people and the state of Israel and the descendants of Jews around the world. And it is active currently in over a dozen countries. And uh, let me tell you a little about Michael. He founded Shabbat Israel and is the chairman. It's, uh, and the goal of the group, as we said, is of the organization is to assist lost tribes and hidden Jews to return. Michael also served as Deputy Communications Director under Bibi Netanyahu in his first term of office, previous Gilgul. Uh, in addition, he is a correspondent and syndicated in the Jerusalem Post. You can read his column, Fundamentally Freud, which always has lots to think about. And he's been appearing for 15 years there. A native New Yorker, graduated with honors from Princeton, his MBA in finance from Columbia University, He's a rabbi, and the incredible that with such a uh, such a background, he's dedicated himself to the Jewish people. We need more people like that. He is the co-author of two books, including the recently published "A Drop in the Ocean: A Daily Dose of the Land of Israel," and uh, he also remains a loyal fan of the New York Mets. As I am. So, way to go, Michael! Thank you for joining us. And uh, please, want to share for maybe uh, 30 minutes, and then we'll open it up to questions. So if you have questions from the audience, uh, type them in the notes, and uh, Shanna will field them, and we'll run them by Michael after he shares them. Thank you, Rabbi Jonathan and Shanna. I appreciate the introduction. Um, it's a pleasure for me to be uh speaking to you all uh, this evening. I've spent most of my adult life uh, seeking out the lost tribes of Israel. I wasn't aware that there was a Tel Aviv tribe as well, so I've already learned something new, and, um, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that that is the case. Um, what I want to speak with you about tonight very briefly is... Um, what I think is one of the most exciting things happening in the Jewish world today. Um, we've all heard a great deal, of course, about Aliyah, about the, uh, the Russian Jews who have come here over the past 30 years, over a million people from the former Soviet Union. Uh, we've heard about the uh, 140,000 or so Ethiopian Jews who have come here. And what we haven't heard a lot about, though, are some more exotic communities, as it were, communities that were once a part of us in many instances, but are now, amazingly enough, coming back. 
And uh, this is something I first learned about um, after making Aliyah, when I was working in the Prime Minister's office in the spring of 1997, a small orange envelope arrived addressed to the Prime Minister from a community in northeastern India, which called itself the B'nai Menasheh, the sons of Manasseh, the sons of the tribe of Manasseh. And it was a very uh, emotional letter. They said that uh, their ancestors were one of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. They'd been exiled 27 centuries ago, and they wanted to come back home. They wanted to come back to Zion. Being the somewhat cynical New Yorker that I was at the time, uh, having grown up in New York, I read the letter, and of course, I immediately thought, um, this is just completely nuts. There's no way that there is some lost tribe of our brothers and sisters in northeastern India. Um, like many of you, I grew up in a Jewish bubble. Um, everyone I knew was Jewish growing up. They all pretty much looked like me, more or less, perhaps not as handsome, but um, but they were, you know, white Ashkenazi. And that was sort of the, the narrow uh, perspective that, that I and I guess many others grew up with. But at the same time, there was something about that letter that was so emotive and so sincere that I chose to answer it. And it turned out that the B'nai Menasheh had been writing to Israeli prime ministers since at least Golda Meir uh, back in the early 70s, and probably since David Ben-Gurion and the founding of the State of Israel in 1948. But like many people who, uh, who contact uh, politicians, they'd never gotten a response all those years. I met with members of the community, and after visiting northeastern India, after learning more about their history and their traditions and their customs, I became convinced uh, of the historicity of their claim. As, as crazy as it sounds, I became persuaded that they were, in fact, who they say they are, that they were a lost tribe of Israel. And miraculously enough, uh, just like uh, the Jewish people, the we are descendants, for the most part, of Judah, the Judeans. Just like we are making our way back to the land after 19 centuries, the tribe of Menasheh, after 27 centuries, is now also making its way back here. Um, I will, with your permission, just... Oh, I wanted to share with you some content. Okay, let me try and enable that. Hold on. I think I have to make you host, so... Giving it over to you. Okay. I'll okay. behave myself. <laughs> um, okay. Let me see. Any techies who can uh, walk me through this here? What are you trying to do? You're trying to give him access? Yeah, to uh, him access to share screen. I think if I make him host, I can do that. Yes. So, um, hmm. Sharing options. Hold on. Uh, okay. Multiple can share. So try again, Michael. Michael, you trying now? Yes. There we go. 
Okay. Uh, so what I'd like to talk to you about tonight is uh, the Bnei Menashe, but also a few other far-flung communities. And if we have time, just to throw in a few ideas about what uh, what the significance of this development is, that, that these people from so far off, who were cut off from for so long, are now uh, returning to us. Sorry, just having a little technical. So first, just a little background about who the B'nai Menashe are and where they come from. we know from the uh, from the Tanakh that um, nearly three thousand years ago, after the death of uh, Shlomo HaMelech, after the death of King Solomon, the people of Israel became divided, and the ten lost tribe, the ten tribes uh, of Israel, resided in the north, and um, the remaining two tribes, uh, Judah and essentially Benjamin, uh, resided in the south. And the Bible tells us that um, 2,700 years ago, the king of Assyria came, he captured the northern kingdom, and he carried those 10 tribes off into exile, uh, into Assyria, which was the superpower of the day. And seemingly, uh, those tribes were lost to history. Um, Nonetheless, the Jewish people uh, never gave up hope that they would one day return. And in fact, there is a lot of interesting historical evidence. Uh, I won't go through it all because our time is short. But there are a number of references made, for example, by Josephus, uh, who lived um, about uh, 800 years after the tribes had been exiled, or in the Talmud itself, uh, which was written about twelve or thirteen hundred years after the tribes were exiled, and it's clear that um, even that far along, there was uh, a great deal of knowledge about their location, or at least where some of them uh, were still to be found. And of course, the, the Hebrew prophets, the Nevi'im, um, repeat over and over again that uh, at the end of days in the ingathering of the exiles, uh, the house of Judah and the house of Israel will come together. This is a language that appears again and again. And Judah, of course, is a reference to us, the Jews. And the house of Israel is a reference to those, those 10 lost tribes that somehow, even though they were lost for so long, uh, they too would come back. And um, that is exactly what is, what is now happening. Um, the B'nai Menashe of India are in fact coming back to our people. Uh, they live in what is now the, uh, the northeastern Indian states of Mizoram and Manipur, uh, which are along the border of Burma and Bangladesh. Uh, you can see it there on the map. Uh, it's a very remote area. 
according to their tradition, their ancestors were exiled in an eastward direction. Um, they, tr they wandered for centuries until they settled in what is now China, where they lived also for a certain period of time before they were forced to flee southward and westward until they settled in what is now uh, northeastern India. The, um, because of its remoteness, uh, the first white people to, uh, to reach that very remote area were the British, who arrived just a little over a century ago, uh, British military officers and missionaries. And they were stunned to discover a population that believed in one God, whom they referred to by the Hebrew word Yah, who kept the Sabbath, who kept kosher, who probably argued a lot among themselves, and who also spoke of a far-off place called Zion, where their ancestors had come from and where they one day dreamt of returning. Uh, it's a very lush and beautiful and pastoral part of the world. And um, at the time, the, uh, the British succeeded in converting most of the B'nai Menashe to Christianity. And until today, for example, the northeastern Indian state of Mizoram is 94% Christian, unlike the rest of India, which is, of course, a majority Hindu country. But there was a core group among the B'nai Menashe who refused to abandon the ways of their ancestors. And it was that core group which came to serve as the basis for what we now call the B'nai Menashe Jewish community. In fact, um, on several of my visits there, I met with elders of the community who told me very moving stories about how when word of the establishment of the State of Israel reached that remote part of India in 1948, 1949, it caused a stir among the B'nai Many of them began packing their bags and walking by foot in a westward direction because they believed at any moment that the Messiah was about to appear and would redeem them and bring them back to the land of Israel. Now, that didn't happen, but it kindled or rekindled within them this desire to return to the Jewish people. And over the subsequent decades, uh, they began organizing and practicing Judaism as best they could. Um, I'm proud to say that uh, as of today, there are now more than 50, 50 B'nai Menashe synagogues spread throughout northeastern India. Uh, incredibly enough, some of them are Ashkenazi in orientation and some of them are Sparty in orientation. Don't ask me how that happened, but it did. Um, and they have essentially embraced what we would call contemporary modern Orthodox Judaism. Um, they, uh, they hold um, a minion, they have a minion, they have religious services three times a day, every day. They celebrate uh, all the holidays. Interestingly, the B'nai Menashe um, had never heard of Hanukkah or Purim until the modern era. And that makes sense if, in fact, their ancestors were from the, a lost tribe, because it would have meant that their ancestors were exiled 
before the events which took place on Hanukkah and Purim that we commemorate uh, nowadays. Um, my organization, Shavei Israel, we operate two educational centers there in northeastern India for the B'nai Menashe. And we've been blessed over the past um, nearly two decades to bring 4,000 members of the community uh, to Israel. Um, now, I know what some of you might be wondering, which is, okay, it's a nice story, but how do we know that they really are the name and After all, we, we live in a world which is uh, a little crazy at times, and people make all kinds of claims and assertions as to uh, identity uh, of one form or another. How do we know? Well, like I said earlier, there are a variety of uh, customs and ancient prayers and chants and rituals uh, which they preserved, and we have the text of many of those ancient uh, prayers and chants. And um, back in 2005, um, after I had approached Israel's Sparta chief rabbi, Rabbi Shlomo Amar, uh, and after he had studied the matter, um, he concluded that, in fact, they are Zera Israel. They are descendants of the people of Israel on a collective basis. But because they were cut off from the rest of the Jewish people for so long, uh, on an individual level, they each need to undergo a formal conversion back to Judaism upon arrival in Israel. There are still about 6,500 B'nai Menashe in India, all of whom uh, wish to come home, all of whom wish to come here. Uh, the... Uh, the B'nai Menashe, uh, generally speaking, they all speak English. They all have at least a high school education. Uh, they're all using smartphones over there. Uh, so they're very much plugged in with what's happening here in Israel. They feel themselves to be a part of the Jewish people. And um, once they arrive, it's, it's really incredible to watch how um, all the young men uh, serve in the Israeli army, many of whom volunteer for combat units, even though they are past the age, they're, you know, in their mid-20s sometimes, and yet they won't give up on the dream of, of defending this land and defending this people. And um, I'm happy to say that, um, thank God, now that there is a functioning government in Israel, uh, we have permission to bring another 700 B'nai Menashe, on Aliyah, which we hope to start doing in a few months from now. I'll just show you a uh, quick video of um, one of the recent groups uh, which arrived. It'll give you a sense of the, the, the joy, the spirit, the Zionist commitment that the B'nai Menashe have. Am Israel, 120 immigrants, members of the B'nai Menashe tribe from the Indian state of Mizoram, made their way last week to a new life in Israel. The Olim entered the Ben Gurion airport with great excitement. They sang throughout their entire journey after waiting for years for this moment. The operation was organized by the Shaveh Israel Organization with the cooperation of the Absorption Israeli Ministry. As part of uh, Operation Menashe 2017, 
We plan to bring a total of more than 700 B'nai Menashe this year. Uh, the group here uh, is the first batch out of the 700. Welcome to Israel. The Absorption Ministry representatives prepared the identity cards quickly and efficiently and handed them to the excited Olim. I'm very excited to reach here, to reach to Israel. We've been trying to get here for so long and now we have finally arrived. It's so good. It's a, it's a mitzvah. And it's a duty for every Jew to live in Israel. That is why. So I'm fulfilling my duty. I feel like I'm fulfilling my duty. You know, a lot of people like to talk about the American dream. It's all about how we can succeed like that, like that. But here you see people, a group of people, living, going, following their dream, which I feel like is the Israeli dream. In Ben-Gurion Arrivals Hall, the Olim were received with a warm welcome of friends and relatives they had not met for years. This is my sister, the second one. How long haven't you seen each other for? About 20 years. Since I made Aliyah, we haven't even seen each other once. The Yeshiva Hezda students from the Ma'alot Northern community arrived especially and welcomed the B'nai Menashe members with dancing and singing. Shaveh Israel Chairman Michael Freund said the blessing of Shehechianu together with the new Olim. From the airport, the B'nai Menashe continued to the absorption center in the Kfar Hasidim, located in the region of the Haifa city. They will study Hebrew there and complete the conversion process. After that, they will be settled in the northern Nazareth elite Galil community. There are still 7,000 B'nai Menashe left in India, all of whom want to make the journey back to the land of their ancestors, the land of Israel. And with God's help, in the coming years, we will bring all of them home as well. I've been involved now with the B'nai Menashe Aliyah for over 15 years. And each time that I greet a group at the airport, it is no less emotional or exciting than it was the first time. Now, while, while we're on the subject of uh, the tribes, um, it's worth mentioning, and a lot of people don't know this, but we know the whereabouts of four out of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, like I was saying earlier, most Jews nowadays, we assume, are, are descendants of the tribe of Judah. Uh, so that makes one. Uh, then, of course, there are the, the Kohanim and the Levim, the, uh, the Jewish priests and the Levites, uh, who are descendants of the tribe of Levi. Uh, the Ethiopian Jews have a tradition that they are from the tribe of Dan. And in fact, when the chief rabbinate of Israel recognized the Ethiopian Jews uh, as part of the people of Israel, they, they accepted that claim. And now we have found uh, Menashe. So that's four, and there are still another eight to go. Um, you may have heard of uh, a variety of, uh, of uh, other communities around the world that assert or claim Israelite ancestry. Uh, these include uh, the Lemba of uh, Zimbabwe and South Africa, uh, the Pashtuns or the Pathans of Afghanistan and Pakistan, and uh, the Igbo tribe of, uh, of Nigeria. 
the veracity of these claims is something that in some cases still needs to be checked. Um, in some cases, it's, strong, it's a stronger case than in others. Um, but uh, the interesting thing is that we are seeing this awakening around the world as more and more people are either reclaiming a Jewish identity or seeking one out in one form or another. And that brings me to another exotic community, which I'll talk about very uh, briefly, uh, the Jews of China. Um, when I say the Jews of China, some of you may have heard of the, uh, the communities that existed in places like Harbin or Shanghai. I'm not referring to those communities. Those were Russian Jews who migrated southward into China, fleeing uh, the Tsar uh, over a century ago. Uh, former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert's family was from uh, Harbin. Uh, they were from that community. I'm talking about the real Chinese Jewish community which dates back over 1,300 years um, to the city of Kaifeng, uh, which was one of the imperial capitals of China in the Song Dynasty. Uh, the, the legend goes that in the 7th or 8th century, uh, seven Jewish merchants from Persia or Iraq settled in Kaifeng with the blessing of the emperor. Uh, he was not able to pronounce their Jewish names, so he gave them each a Chinese equivalent name. So Mr. Levy became Mr. Li, for example. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that every Chinese person named Li is Jewish, of course, because then China would be the largest Jewish country in the world. Uh, it means that specific family in, in Kaifeng. The community grew and prospered. They built a synagogue in the year 1163. In the Middle Ages, uh, there were as many as 5,000 Jews there. The last rabbi of Kaifeng uh, died two centuries ago, and the synagogue that had stood there for 700 years was destroyed in a series of floods in the middle of the 19th century. There was no anti-Semitism, amazingly enough, in, in China at the time or in Kaifeng, and the community rapidly assimilated and intermarried beginning about 150 to 200 years ago. But until today, there are about a 1,000 people in Kaifeng who, who look Chinese, who speak Chinese, and who identify via family trees as descendants of the Chinese Jewish community. I first visited there 15 years ago, um, back in 2005, together with uh, Rabbi Shlomo Riskin from Efrat and some other rabbis. And... Um, we met with a group of about 80 of the descendants. They had begun of their own initiative to gather every Friday night and to commemorate in some way uh, the Sabbath. Um, they would recite the Kiddush. Whatever it was that they knew how to do, they would do it out of a sense of pride in their Jewish identity. Uh, the young lady that you're seeing in front of you is um, named Jinjin. And um, after that visit, when I came back to Israel, um, we decided to bring four young members of the community to Israel. And Jinjin was among them. Um, and um, this was a, uh, sorry, this was a private burial ground that they had, which went back centuries. Even though in modern China, uh, dead people are usually uh, cremated, 
um, the Chinese Jews still go to great efforts uh, to bury their loved ones. And uh, Jinjin and her father were very proud to show us uh, outside the city uh, where they had been uh, continuing that custom for many centuries. Um, in any event, we, we brought Jinjin along with three other young ladies uh, to Israel. And um, this is their first visit at the Western Wall. They arrived in Israel barely knowing the Aleph Bet. And they went to study at a religious women's seminary outside Jerusalem. And I know we're not supposed to say these things in the age of political correctness, but there's something about the combination of Jewish brains and Chinese brains that is very powerful. And over the course of a year, these four young women uh, simply uh, absorbed and, and internalized so much uh, in terms of Jewish knowledge and Jewish practice. And after a year, uh, they went before the rabbinical court in Jerusalem to go through a formal conversion process. Um, I, was, I had the merit to be there with them, and I, I just want to share you a quick story about Jinjin, who you see here in, in the photo, because it, it underlines um, just how meaningful uh, these stories are, and, and I think it underlines why they're so important for the rest of us, for the entire Jewish people. Um, uh, Jinjin, of course, was, uh, went into the room and was uh, facing the three Dayanin, the three rabbinical judges, who asked her all kinds of questions about Jewish belief and practice, and she simply aced the test. It was, it was simply remarkable. And uh, at the end, the, the rabbis notified her that uh, Jinjin had passed the test and she would now be accepted back into uh, the Jewish people. And it's traditional at that point that the, the person going through the conversion takes upon themselves a Hebrew name. Most women, of course, choose what we would consider a, a routine biblical name, uh, uh, Hannah or Rebecca or Rachel or Leah. But when the rabbis asked Jinjin what she'd like to be called, listen carefully, she said she wanted to be called Yecholiah. Yecholiah. None of us had ever heard of this name. And uh, one of the rabbis asked her, um, wh where did you get this name from? We we've never heard it before. Jinjin looked surprised, and she said, Rabbi, it's in the Bible, it's in the Tanakh. And the rabbi asked her, well, where in the Tanakh is it? Because I've, I've never come across that name. She had her Chinese Bible with her, and she was flipping through the pages till she got to Divrei Hayamim Bet, to the second book of Chronicles, all the way at the end. Sure enough, there is a, a pasuk there, a verse, which says, that the name of the mother of one of the kings of Judah was Yecholiah. So here you had this young lady coming all the way from Kaifeng, China to Jerusalem, and she was teaching the rabbis and me a pasuk in Tanakh. But then one of the rabbis said to her, okay, it's in the, it's in the Tanakh, but why do you want this name? Why is this name meaningful to you? And then Jinjin said, that as a child growing up in China, she only knew two things about Judaism, the two things that her father knew to tell her. 
The first thing he told her was that Jews are smart because they do not eat pork. I'm not saying that there is any connection there necessarily, but that's what her, her father told her. The second thing he told her was that no matter how hard it might be to believe, one day God would bring them back, the Chinese Jews back, and all the Jewish people back to their ancestral homeland. And Jinjin should know that God can do anything, no matter how difficult or impossible it might seem to us as human beings. And then Jinjin told the rabbis, that is why she chose the name Yecholiah, because now that she was standing in Jerusalem, having returned to the Jewish people, now she knew that what her father had told her was true and that God can truly do anything. And the name Yichol Yah means literally God can. And Jinjin said she wanted to carry that name for the rest of her life as a living testimony to the fact that God can truly do everything. We've brought thus far about 20 young Chinese Jews on Aliyah. We have permission to bring another two more, which we hope to do once the coronavirus crisis uh, settles down, which we, uh, we hope will happen very soon. Finally, uh, we, we've looked at so far two communities, the B'nai Menasheh, whose connection to the Jewish people goes back 2,700 years, who have begun to awaken anew to their identity. We spoke a little about the Chinese Jews of Kaifeng. And now I just want to touch upon a, uh, a more modern uh, community that was almost cut off from us, but it too now is making its way back. And those are the hidden Jews of Poland from the Holocaust. We all know that in 1939, Poland was home to the largest Jewish community in the world between three to three and a half million Jews. Over 90% of them were murdered by the Germans and their accomplices, which left about 300 to 350,000 Polish Jews still alive at the end of the war. Initially, most of them went back to Poland to reclaim assets or to find loved ones who may have survived. And then thankfully, most of them got the heck out of there but many chose to stay. And because of what they endured, first under Nazism and then oppression under communism, many of them chose to hide their identities, even from their own family members. Since the downfall of communism, a growing number of young Poles have been discovering or rediscovering their Jewish roots. And um, the numbers are estimated to be in the thousands, thousands of such people throughout Poland who have Jewish roots. And it's often a very traumatic experience for many of them. In other cases, it leads them on a journey of rediscovery, a journey back to the Jewish people. On uh, one of my visits there to a, a town called Bielsko Biala, I met this young man named Yatsik, who works as the archivist in the local Jewish community. He had recently discovered 
that his paternal grandfather had been a Jew and he wanted to do something for the Jewish community. So he took his skills as an archivist and was trying to make some order and some sense over all the, the books and the documents that they had still managed to preserve after the war. Now, I was on that visit with, uh, with two rabbis, and um, Yatsik suddenly got very excited at one point, and he asked us to wait, and he ran into the other room. Several minutes passed, and then he came and he placed on the table before us uh, this talit, this prayer shawl, which um, he said had been brought back to the community by a local non-Jewish Pole who had collected it from the street back during the Second World War when uh, some of the local Jews had been murdered in the street. And the stain on the talit uh, was blood from one of the Jews who had been murdered. And Yatsik wanted to ask a very simple question. He said that they were planning to open a Jewish museum there to tell the history of the community. And there was a debate going on, and he wasn't sure whether it would be more fitting to use this talit as an ex part of the exhibition, or perhaps, out of respect for the dead, perhaps the talit should be buried. Now, like I said, I was there with two rabbis, and um, unfortunately, they got into a rather heated debate about what would be the more appropriate thing to do. Um, and it was never, the question was never really resolved, but I think it gave Yatsik an insight into the, the richness of, uh, of Judaism. And, um, but it also highlighted for me and for, for the people who were with me um, the fact that even though Polish Jewry 70 years ago was nearly completely exterminated, um, the embers continue to burn strongly. And the Jewish spark, the Pintala Yid, as it's called in Yiddish, that's inside each and every one of us is something that is indestructible. It's inextinguishable. It may lie dormant for millennia or centuries or decades, but eventually, when the time is right, it bursts forth and it propels people to come knocking on our collective door and asking to be allowed back in. And that, I think, is a great responsibility that we all have as Jews and as for those of us living in Israel as Israelis. More and more in recent years, a growing number of people around the world are looking to reclaim their Jewish roots they're looking to rejoin the Jewish people. Doing so in a world where anti-Semitism is on the rise is often an act of great courage. They may not all look like us. They may not all have the same skin color. They may not all speak the same mother tongue. But Jews... By now, we should all know this. Jews come in all shapes, colors, and sizes. And 
it only, some people view our diversity as a people as a weakness because we're so divided. We disagree on so many things. We're at each other's throats all the time. But I see that diversity as one of our greatest strengths. The fact that uh, Israel is now home to not just American Jews and Russian Jews, but to a growing number of Indian Jews and Chinese Jews is something that is in our national interest as a people and as a nation. And beyond that, we have, I believe, a historical responsibility, a moral responsibility, and even a religious responsibility to reach out to these communities and to welcome them back home again. In doing so, we are performing an act of historical justice and we're also closing the historical circle. So this is what I have chosen to devote my life to. Um, there are many obstacles that we face, bureaucratic and otherwise, but at the end of the day, there are those special moments when you see someone fulfilling their dream and the dream of their ancestors and returning to our people. And it's those moments that, um, that make it all worth it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. That was so interesting. And I had chills all over from some of these very moving stories. So thank you very much, Michael. I am going to present to you some questions that people have put in the chat. In the meantime, um, I want everyone to listen to the answers, but I also want, if anybody has a question, to put it in the chat and I'll get to it. I myself have a handful of questions because there was so much rich content there. Um, we have, and, and uh, Michael, if you could do your best to try to give each question just a minute, um, a minute or two, because we need to wrap around 9.15, and we have a, quite a few questions, and I would love for everyone to get their question answered. Sure, so, sure. Um, first question, can you repeat the four known tribes, and which ones are we? Which tribe do the Pashtun and Lemba identify with? You, you went over it earlier, but um, there was a, another question, so I wanted you to re reply. Okay, so um, 2,700 years ago, the 10 tribes were exiled. 140 years after that, the Babylonians captured Jerusalem, and they sent the Judeans, the Jews, to Babylon, where they resided for 70 years, came back, rebuilt the Second Temple. The Romans came to town in the year 70 and destroyed the Second Temple, and they scattered the Jewish people to the four corners of the earth. Most Jews that you meet nowadays, whether in Toronto, London, New York, or Israel, generally speaking, we say are from the tribe of Judah, or Judeans. Um, though it's also true that Benjamin was a small tribe that lived next to Judah and became sort of mixed in with it, but no one nowadays can really trace back their tribal identity other than to say that we're Jews. However, the second tribe are the Levites are, or the, and the Kohanim, the Jewish priests, both of whom are descendants of the tribe of Levi, 
which was separate from Judah. Um, then uh, the third tribe I mentioned were the, was the tribe of Dan. The Ethiopian Jewish community uh, has a tradition that they are from the tribe of Dan. And now we have, thank God, found Menashe, uh, Manasseh, the, uh, the son of uh, the biblical Yosef HaTzadik, the biblical Joseph. So those are the four tribes that we know their whereabouts. Thank you so much. Moving on, um, this is a question from John. Um, he wants to know if you have encountered Svi Misinai, the Svi Misinai project, the engagement along in your research. This project focuses on Palestinian and Bedouin tribes and families that know of their Jewish roots and customs, similar to post Inquisition Moranos and Conversos. Among other things, the project envisions we to bring them back into the people of Israel. It still needs some refinement, but it's still interesting. Do you know about this? Yes. Um, I've met Svini Sinai a number of times. I'm familiar with his work, and um, he's uncovered some incredible things. Um, I don't necessarily agree with some of his conclusions. Uh, he claims, for example, that well over 90% of all Palestinians are descendants of Jews, and I don't think that is historically accurate because we know, without getting political, uh, we know that there really was no Palestinian nation or people, per se, and that it is basically a hodgepodge of uh, Bedouins and, and other Arabs from other locations who, who came to the land of Israel in the past few centuries. But... We also know that there are, in fact, uh, certain chamulot, certain um, extended Arab clans, which have Jewish ancestry and know they have Jewish ancestry. For example, in the uh, city of Chalchul, outside of, he of Hebron, there is an Arab clan uh, known as the uh, Shitrit clan. Shitrit is a traditional Moroccan Jewish name. And during the first intifada, uh, many of the, um, the, the worst of the Hamas uh, terrorists came from the area of the southern Hebron Hills, from villages such as Yatta and um, Sarif and elsewhere. And one of the theories that uh, the Israeli establishment had at the time as to why that particular area gave birth to some of the most fanatical terrorists was that in those towns can be found some of these Arab chamulot that are known to be descendants of Jews. They are looked down upon by their fellow Arabs because of their Jewish ancestry, even after two, three, four hundred years uh, after they were forcibly converted to Islam. And in order to show their neighboring Arabs that they were just as committed to the cause so many of them sent their young people to join the, the terrorist movement. Um, now, every year there are a handful of Palestinians who actually do very quietly and discreetly return to Judaism. Um, you can imagine the difficulties they face, not only in terms of getting permission to enter Israel, but um, anyone who does so uh, immediately receives death threats from their relatives and family members and friends. So, uh, but, but there are a handful each year, and I've, I've met some of them, 
who uh, who managed to uh, to do it. Very interesting. It's actually funny that you use the word chamulot because I was conducting an interview for a report I was doing in Hebrew with an Arab, and he used he was speaking in Hebrew. In the middle of it, he used the word chamula, and I had no <laughs> idea what that word meant, but I knew what it meant. I had never heard it before, but I just had this image of a tribe, of a family. Um, so it, it made me laugh to hear you say that. There's a lot of questions that we have here um, about DNA testing. And I want to bring it together with a question that I had. There's a few people wondering if, if there's a possibility of, of d- using DNA tests to find the legitimacy. Um, what I wanted to pair that question with was... Um, why do these people need to have a proper conversion? Who is to say that me as an American Jew who came, who, who's, who I believe that my roots are from Poland and from, from Russia and, and Europe, who is to say that I'm a real Jew? Who's to say that there wasn't somebody in my family who converted or that there was, you know, who, who is the, who is the authority on who's a Jew and who's not a Jew? And can you test that through DNA testing? Okay, so um, genetic testing has obviously grown a lot in popularity, and it can show uh, that a person has um, Jewish ancestry. Now, but we shouldn't confuse Jewish ancestry with uh, recognized Jewish identity. Let's put it that way. In other words... um, Paul Ryan, the the congressman from Wisconsin, uh, discovered that um, he had Jewish ancestry uh, dating back to the 1500s, Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. That doesn't mean that he is a Jew or that he identifies as a Jew or that he is recognized as a Jew under Jewish law. There is something, though, uh, in the process of being developed, um, there is uh, uh, mitochondrial DNA uh, on the Y chromosome. And that is something that is passed down. Mitochondrial DNA is passed down through the maternal line. And uh, it is possible, um, a number of years ago, geneticists discovered something incredible. They discovered that 40% of all Ashkenazim can be traced back to four uh, Jewish women who migrated from the land of Israel over 1,500 years ago to Italy and then spread out into Europe. So if someone takes a mitochondrial DNA test and discovers that they have the same mitochondrial DNA as the 40% of Ashkenazim, theoretically, that would prove that they are biologically Jewish. Now, this question of what does that mean in terms of Jewish law and status and recognition is something that the rabbinate and various rabbis are studying intensely and exploring, because it obviously opens up new avenues um, with which to assist people to identify or to determine or discover uh, their Jewish identity. Um, One of the tribes I mentioned earlier, the, uh, sorry, the the B'nai Menashe, I should mention, there was a genetic test done on the B'nai Menashe many years ago by the Central Genetics Laboratory of India in Calcutta. And it found that they had DNA markers that indicate a Middle Eastern origin. 
which is not what one would expect to find in a population group living uh, along the border of Burma and Bangladesh. So that would seem to have strengthened uh, their, their assertion that their ancestors did come from this land, from this region. As for your second question, um, my approach is as follows. Um, I've been wor I work with people who want to rejoin the Jewish people and be recognized as such. Um, the state of Israel has the chief rabbinate. Um, you can, some people uh, will defend the rabbinate, others won't. Um, I'm not getting into that. My goal is simply to help people through the system that exists. Uh, whether one likes the system or not is a different question. And there are plenty of people on both sides who are either fighting to improve the system or defend the system. And I, I wish them both, uh, you know, a lot of good health and success. But I'm focused on helping to get people through the system so that they can achieve their dream. Thank you. Um, another question. Have, have, are there any traditions that stand out to you in your mind that you learned that one tribe had that was unique? And um, would you say that all of these lost tribes that you found are relatively um, similar? Like they hold the same customs and the same traditions, even though they're spread out throughout the world? Or are there certain things that um, hold, that bring them, that tie them back to their origins that would make sense in the, in the separation of the tribes? Um, well, I should say that, you know, we, we have to be a little careful. Um, and we, whenever I approach a uh, community that we're looking into, I always try to do so from a, a perspective of skepticism at first, because it's very easy to get swept away emotionally and to start finding Jews wherever one looks. And that's not serious, and that's not what this is about. Um, you know, the fact that a, a tribe might uh, observe a Sabbath or um, separate men and women during a, a certain time of the month, that's very common across many cultures and doesn't necessarily indicate, uh, oh, they must be Jewish. We, obviously, what we do is we look for um, a much deeper variety of evidence than just that. And I'll... I'll give you uh, an example that really stood out for me was with the Bnei Menashe. The Bnei Menashe were still performing the korbanot, the sacrifices, um, into the modern era. Uh, as late as the 50s and 60s in some parts of India, they were still doing the, the sacrifices. And um, some of the elders of the community uh, still remember their father, their uncle, their grandfather, who was the village priest, and a number of years ago, we took a, a prominent Haredi rabbi, a prominent ultra-Orthodox rabbi, to, uh, to India. Um, and I think he was pretty skeptical um, when we went. And uh, we had some of the elders put on a reenactment of the sacrificial service. Now, anyone can open the book of Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, and sort of do copy-paste and, you know, perform a a sacrifice, as it were. But the Bnei Menashe had preserved certain elements of the Torah Sheva Alpeh, of the oral tradition, down through the centuries um, that were 
that are not found in the written Torah. And uh, it was simply overwhelming and, and remarkable. Uh, for example, um, if the, the village priest had to be married, uh, if his wife were to pass away, he would not be allowed to perform the sacrifices. And they always had a deputy village priest, um, almost like a utility shortstop, who could step in and perform the sacrificial rites if the village priest was unable to do so. That's straight out of the Mishnah in Masechet Yoma. Um, and I could give many other such examples. In other words, there were core elements of ancient Jewish law, which they had somehow passed down from generation to generation. Um, and when you see something like that, so even that Haredi rabbi was convinced, and it only reaffirmed for me what I, what I already believed about them. So interesting. Thank you so much. I am going to take Rabbi Feldman's question as our last question. And um, then I'm just going to have a closing remark and I'm going to put our contact information in the chat so that everybody can get in touch and find the information that they need. Rabbi Feldman, take the last question. Thank you, Michael. First of all, for, uh... Rabbi Feldman, we can't hear you. Can you speak up? Thank you, Michael, first of all, for joining us and for your incredibly fascinating uh, presentation once again. Rabbi, we can't hear you. Is there something wrong with your audio? Can we now? No, you're very low. How's this? No? Do you have a special plug-in? Do you have a microphone plugged in or something? Uh, Michael, can you hear me? Yes, I do. Okay. Yes. So first of all, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, much uh, credit to you for dedicating yourself to such an, a great cause and uh, an inspiring one. You showed us some of the biblical verses. And how do you see this relating to uh, the ingathering of the exiles, uh, the prophecies in the Torah, that speak about such gathering Jews from the four corners of the earth? And what about um, enormous populations like the Pashtun? And where do you see this going even beyond uh, the B'nai Menashe? I'd like to believe that um, the beginning of the return of the lost tribes of Israel, in addition to the ongoing return of the, the Jews, the Judeans, and their reunification here in the land, is another step forward in the redemptive process. Um, it's another big step forward uh, because we are seeing the beginning of uh prophecy coming to life. Uh, we are seeing the, the words of the Nevi'im, of the prophets, literally jumping off the page and coming to life before our eyes, which is something that previous generations did not have the merit uh, to do. Um, the Chinese Jews, for example, there is a, a pasuk in, in Isaiah, in Yishayahu, Perak Memtet Pasuk Yud Bet, uh, chapter 49, verse 12, where uh, God talks about the ingathering of the exiles, and the last three words of the pasuk are, 
ve'ele me'eretz sinim. Those from the land of the sinim. Now, most English translations don't know what to do with that word, and they write the land of the sinim, S-I-N-I-M. But any Hebrew speaker knows that uh, sin is China. Sinim are the Chinese. And it's as if Yeshayahu was foretelling the return of those from the land of the Chinese, the Chinese Jews. They are coming back. And this is something that should, I think, should give us all a great deal of encouragement. Um, I've been living in Israel now for 25 years. Uh, we all know some of the difficulties, the challenges this country has faced, uh, terrorism, hostility, etc., anti-Semitism, um, bias, uh, you name it. And there are times where it could easily drive a person into despair where you could begin to wonder and say to yourself, good Lord, after everything our people have suffered for 1,900 years, we finally come back to our land. Can't we just relax a little? Can't, the, can't Hashem just let us relax? Why is it so difficult? Well, there's, a, there's another pasuk um, in Yeshayahu where God says to us, Al fear not, for I am with you. from the east I will bring your descendants. and I will gather you from the west. Now, if you look at that verse, if you look at that pasuk, the first half seemingly has nothing to do with the second half. The first half is a reassurance. God is saying, "Don't worry." I will be with you. And the second half is talking about the ingathering of our descendants from the East and the Jewish people from the West. What's the connection? I think our generation is blessed to see what the connection is. Namely, when we witness the return of Jews from the West and descendants of Jews from the East, it is a tangible sign for all of us that we have nothing to fear because God is with us. God is watching over us. The growth and development of this country and of this state are part of the divine plan. And that is something that should give us all a great deal of encouragement. And we should all be grateful and appreciative of the fact that we can each play a role uh, in this. You asked about what about other tribes like the Pashtuns, the masses of them and all of that. Look, I, we, we know or we believe at the end of days uh, when the redemption arrives, when, when the Messiah appears, uh, he will gather in, God will gather in all the, 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 those who were lost to our people. Not one will be, will be left behind, says Yechezkel, says the prophet Ezekiel. I'm not arrogant enough to feel that um, I am going to bring home all the tribes or even that it's necessarily my duty to do so. I think each of us as Jews has a role to play in this world, to bring sanctity in the, into the world, to do our part to strengthen Israel and the Jewish people, and in doing so, to lay the foundation for, uh, for the divine redemption. 
I'd like to think that by bringing in more and more of the B'nai Menashe, the Chinese Jews and others, we're not just in, hopefully inspiring one another and inspiring ourselves, but we are creating an awakening here on earth that will elicit an awakening from above, uh, an awakening of divine mercy uh, on the people of Israel. And on that note, I just want to close with my favorite Hasidic story, because I think everyone should have a favorite Hasidic story. I don't have, as far as I know, I don't have a drop of Hasidic blood in me, but nonetheless, I think everyone should have a favorite Hasidic story. And mine is about Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Kotsk, the Kotska Rebbe, who lived in Poland in the 19th century. He was a unique figure, a uh, very theory personality, very strongly committed to truth and nothing but the truth. And the story goes that uh, someone once asked him a very daring question. He said to him, Rebbe, I've heard that you can perform wonders and miracles. If that's the case, why don't you revive the dead? So the Rebbe thought and said, well, I could revive the dead, but I prefer to revive the living. To revive the living. And that is, I think, a motto that every human being, every Jew, should take with them uh, wherever they go and whatever they do. To always look for opportunities to revive the living, whether it is a friend who is feeling down or alone or someone in need, or whether it is um, something of national import that needs to be done, whatever it is that touches your heart and touches your soul. Um, that's the reason we're here, to revive the living. And um, I'm thankful to God that I'm able to play this, whatever role I'm able to play in helping to revive some of, some of these lost Jews. And um, if anyone wants to find out more, you're, you're welcome to check out our website at www.shavay.com. S-H-A-V-E-I, Shavei.org. Thank you so much. I'm writing it down in the chat to everyone. Shavei.org, you said, right? Yes. So I'm writing it down for everyone. Um, Michael, that was absolutely excellent. And it really, I think, made a huge impact on everyone um, I certainly welcome all the tribes to come back to Israel and I wanted to thank you so much. I wanted to thank the people who joined us, Sam, Lippin, Jason, Robert, John, Oded, Marion, Leah, although it doesn't look like Leah, it looks like Leah's husband, Jennifer, um, Jennifer, if you're in the Tel Aviv area, I hope that you will join us in person when we do our talks out on the beach. It's very exciting, Evelyn, and um, I just want to thank everyone who came and um, have a wonderful, wonderful week. Follow me on Instagram if you want to get reminded about when we do these events and on Facebook, Tribe Tel Aviv. I run the page and my personal Facebook and Instagram accounts, I use professionally, Shana Fold, S-H-A-N-N-A-F-U-L-D. Thank you all so much. This was, this was awesome. Thank you, Michael. Thanks. Keep up the good work.
Thanks. Have a good evening, everyone. You too.